Okay, hi everyone. Um, hi to everyone watch, watching online and also to Real Life Community Church. Um, as I begin, if you want to open up to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to go cross over to chapter 4 as well, but keep it uh, open there because we're going to go through quite as, as much as we can, okay, uh, today. But let me start off by uh, mentioning this. I want to let you in on my marriage, okay? With any marriage, there are many joys, but there are many head-scratching moments is the best way to put it. And I have learned these lessons throughout my time with Laura. Um, I can still remember clearly the time early in our marriage, uh, probably within our first year of marriage, Laura coming home from grocery shopping. I was on the couch as usual, watching sports, TV, whatever it was, but I was definitely on the couch. As I'm watching TV, she walks into the living room and as I sort of turn to look, I see her arms filled with like shopping bags, about five on each arm. So as I look at her struggling, I asked her if she needed help. And Laura replied with a resounding no. But what I know now, after nine years of marriage is, no actually means yes. However, there was another time when I would ask Laura, or multiple times when I would ask Laura, hey Laura, is it okay if I go out late tonight with the boys, we're just gonna go hang out, watch sports, or whatever it is? And Laura would answer with, yes. But I did not know that there were times when she says yes, but she actually means no. Church, don't worry about me oversharing about my marriage because I asked Laura if I could share this and she said yes. <laughs> so why do, why do I bring this up? Look, I have learned over the years, and for those who are not married or who, uh, for those who are single and just in friendships and relationships, Relationships and marriages and all those things, any type of friendship is hard work. But can also lead you, because there's two sinners coming together, it can also easily lead you to sin. In those moments that I described, whether they're fiction or non-fiction, in those moments that have occurred more than once in every single relationship that you and I have had, the truth is, I knew Laura needed help in those moments. I just chose not to help. I chose purposely to ignore her cries for help. There were multiple times when I knew her no meant yes, but it was more comfortable for me to sit on the couch and do absolutely nothing. It was easier to make the excuse that, hey, when she's ready to tell me the truth, then I'll help her. It's on her, not on me. The truth is, I don't want to get into those difficult you know, conversations. They're hard. Because I'm scared about how she's going to react. But after all this time, I now know that having these hard conversations with the ones that we most love 
actually helps us all grow, does it not? But it seems to me that all people want to avoid all types of difficulties. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18, I'll read all the way to 4 to 6. And it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an, uh, as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh are the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. There are about a million sermons in that Bible reading I just read, but we're gonna make it into one. Last week, a foreigner by the name of Jeff Bucknam came and preached on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 and left it there. And he left the most difficult parts for the rest of us. So once again, Jeff is leaving us in the most difficult of moments. <laughs> the, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, sorry, he pens this letter reminding the church of Christ's sufferings. That's how we start in verse 18. In order to help with their current sufferings, the church that the people that he's writing to. He's saying, think about Christ's sufferings and it'll help you with your current sufferings. Now the theme of sufferings picks up steam here and we need to remember that Peter is writing to Christians in the midst of it. They're dispersed, but they're suffering because they're suffering because they're following Jesus, living in a world that is not their home. So there are two points I wanna make from this passage. The first one is, Jesus is victorious over the spiritual. And my second point is, Jesus is victorious over the physical, okay? So Jesus is victorious over the spiritual, Jesus is victorious over the physical. Let's go to the first point. Peter starts by encouraging the church to remember Jesus' suffering, okay? That's where we start in verse 18. He realizes Jesus' suffering will help you in your suffering. That's what he's saying to the church. It will help you get through your suffering and it will eventually help you to understand your suffering as well. Think about it even in today's context. 
When we celebrate, we celebrate certain days. We have special occasions on our calendar. We set aside days for those who have suffered for a cause we collectively agree with. So down south, people celebrate Abraham Lincoln because he had a cause that he died for. It was the cause of slavery. Or closer to home for us as Canadians, we celebrate someone like Terry Fox who fought for cancer. We celebrate him yearly. The names I've just mentioned remind us of the causes they stood for and the reasons for their deaths as well. Socially speaking, we keep using their names over and over again yearly. My kids know Terry Fox. Why? To encourage and inspire another generation to not forget and to live with conviction and courage. And to know that even if life comes to an, an unfortunate end for you and I, the cause will be worth it all. The cause or the reason is ultimately greater than your life. And Peter starts with Jesus. That's the cause, that's the reason. And Jesus didn't suffer for any reason. Jesus suffered, or in other translations, died once for sins. A couple of things to notice here is that Christ's suffering occurs just once. That's what Peter says, once. This was important for the church and for us to know. Because previously, priests in the Old Testament would have had to go to the temple and sacrifice over and over and over again for the sins of the people. But now this one sacrifice, this one suffering, this one death that Jesus has made for sin ends the need for any type of sacrifice. That's it. So Jesus has done what was necessary to what? The text tells us to bring us to God. The one sacrifice brings us to God, to reconcile us back to the Father. North in my high school days, for those who don't know me, um, I was a state in Australia, I was a state cross-country runner. Now some of you were thinking, yeah, well of course, with those chicken legs, of course, I'm not surprised you're a cross-country runner, Vin. Now the average run during that time was anywhere between 10 to 15 kilometers. And during many of those races, you know, like seriously, the body hurts. The truth is my body still hurts from those races. But in the middle of the race is where things are sort of at their toughest, at their most difficult. Because the excitement of when the race sort of starts is gone. It's long gone now. But also the excitement of the race when it comes to a close, it still feels sort of far off. But all the runners know in the race, there's a finish line. Peter is ultimately telling us that those who belong to Jesus even though you were suffering in this race of life, Jesus has gone before you. He's ran the race, he's won the race, he's tuned you on to the finish line to, to complete the race. Through Christ, you will be victorious. He will help us through it. So be encouraged. That's what Peter wants, for us to be encouraged. Then in verse 19, Peter takes this really interesting turn and now gives us a sort of, wider and fuller view of God, Christ's suffering and what it's achieved. There's two words I want to clarify and they come in verse 19 when he mentions, in verse 19, chapter three, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. 
The two words are spirits and proclaimed. Now the spirits here is best understood and translated as angelic beings. So like angels. These are a reference to the angels that occur in Genesis chapter six. If you think the Bible's boring, it's not gonna get boring now. Because in Genesis chapter six, it tells us of, an, of the angels that look at the women on earth and think to themselves, wow, earth women are really good looking. And what they decide is to marry them and to have children with them. The point of Genesis six and then first Peter here of what we're reading is, it's, it, it, it is, it is saying that even in the spiritual realm, first of all, there is evil. So first of all, we can say goodbye to our guardian angels potentially. But the point is here is on earth and in these angelic realms, there's evil everywhere. It's infiltrated every place of creation. These evil spirits and angels that are in prison or in a confined space have heard from Jesus. That's what the passage tells us. They've heard from Jesus and what they hear is important to them and to us. Peter uses the word proclaim and not the word evangelize. That's a very important distinction because the point here is not that Jesus descended into heaven to save the angels, to save the evil angels. It's not saying that he descended into hell, sorry, descended into hell to save these angels, but descended into hell to give people a second chance. That's not the point. The point is that the word proclaiming is referring to Jesus telling the evil spirits that because of his death and resurrection, he is now victorious and they have nothing over him and they have nothing over anyone who belongs to him. He's basically saying, evil angels, you have no power anymore. So in verse 20, he then throws something else at us. He quickly mentions, to throw into the mix, he now refers to Noah. So you got Christ's sufferings, you got evil angels, and now you got Noah. For those who don't know Noah, he's an Old Testament character, and his story can be found in Genesis 6 as well, following the whole angel incident. Now Noah's the guy that built the ark, okay? This big boat, he puts the animals in because God's gonna flood the world due to the world's wickedness. It's, it's evil, it's sin. But God saves Noah and his family and they all remain together in the ark for over a, for over a year. They were locked up in the ark for you know, a very long time. It almost sounds like a COVID drama. The point of bringing up, uh, bringing up Noah is, is to remind, first of all, a couple of things, that evil was everywhere. But also to remind all persecuted Christians that God in Genesis 6, at the height of human destruction, of earthly sin, but also in angelic and sort of this idea of even heavenly wickedness, though God had the right to destroy all of it and start all over again, instead, he really showed loving patience and kindness. If God did that for Noah, Peter's telling the church and he's gonna do the same for you as Christians who are being persecuted. That he will show patiently save but also patiently love you. 
And he's also going to be patiently loving and patiently, you know, just be patient overall, to, even to those who are persecuting you. Then we get this idea of water. The water sort of enters the passage, the text. So water in the ancient world was sort of a mystery, okay? It was this great unknown, but what was known about it was that water would bring death. Because it was so mysterious, you didn't know what was in it and under it, you couldn't see, you know, you couldn't swim deep down enough. But just like the waters in Noah's flood, it would bring death. Peter makes the connection with the waters of baptism and about bringing death, especially to those who immerse themselves in the waters of baptism. But Christians who are baptized, to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, those, those waters, when you come out, you survive death. Why? Because you were baptized with Jesus. This is what Peter is reminding the people of. You were rescued from death as you enter into water because Jesus is victorious. Over the angelic beings, but over death as well. And we know this because of his resurrection as he rises, just like as we re-rise out of the water. Peter wants to make this point clear that it is not baptism that saves you or that baptism that conquers death, but it is purely just the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. Then he concludes in verse 22 with his main point that it is through Jesus' death on the cross and by his resurrection that Jesus is victorious over the evil spirits and spiritual forces. He's saying they all now, every single corner of the earth, they all now submit under his authority. During World War II, there was always anticipation on both sides of who would win the war. And during that time, in, you know, like coming to the late uh, 1930s to the you know, early 1940s, with communication during this time being quite limited, you needed something sort of powerfully simple to communicate victory to the masses, right? Either side. When the Allied forces won, and without having to read a whole entire newspaper article, they had in bold the word victory. And if that wasn't enough, the Prime Minister at the time of England, of Great Britain, Winston, Winston Churchill, put up two fingers to signify to the British that they were victorious. Something clear, something powerful, something so that all the masses would know that victory had been won. Church, the Bible I hold in my hand climaxes at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because it tells you of his victory and nothing in the spiritual realm can take that away from him. And so that should encourage us despite us having no power over the spiritual realm. Second point, Jesus is victorious over the physical so starting from verse Peter chapter four, when we get into chapter four, Peter goes on to tell the church, okay, since you know that now, since you know that through Christ's suffering, he's victorious over this spiritual realm, over the realm that you have, you have no power and control over, 
He's now saying, because you know that, keep that in mind. Choose to use Jesus' suffering as you go through your own suffering. Like use it as encouragement and hope to spur you on when things get really tough. He's basically saying this, that information must now turn into transformation. The information must now turn into transformation. What you know about Jesus has to transform you now. I can still remember in 2013 when I received my Canadian driver's license. Just to remind everyone, Australians drive down under, otherwise known as upside down. And now I was driving in a country where everything was driven the right way up. And I remember distinctly going to that, the, the licensing office and then asking and explaining my situation. I'm Australian, but I'm, I'm moving here. I'm marrying a Canadian. I need a Canadian driver's license. And all they did was ask me for my Australian, my Australian driver's license. So they took it from me. I handed them. And then, then once I handed my, you know, my Australian driver's license, Eventually, on the same day, within less than an hour, they handed me a brand new Canadian driver's license. That's the end of my story. But did you miss that? Without a single driver's knowledge test, without a single question being asked about my driving ability or even history, I could be a convict without a single drive on the wrong side of the road, they gave me a license. I can actually remember responding by saying, that's it. It was my wife, Laura, that had to then teach me driving, especially in Calgary, in the snow, as she's holding on for dear life, how to drive in Canada. Laura had to, look, Laura, had gone through it all already. She had gone through the testing, she had gone through the knowledge exam, she had gone through all the practices, she had gone through all of it to, to attain her license. I was using everything that she had learned to help me with my own driving. Asking her, what do I do here? How do I do this? What's left, what's right? What is Peter ultimately saying? As he continues in the verse, as you continually use Christ's sufferings to make the choice to suffer, then you were choosing to suffer rather than to sin. He's saying basically, look, church, I know that doing good is hard and it will cause you suffering, but that is better than sin. And he uses Jesus, why? Because Jesus was so focused on, not on himself but saving his people to his Father. Those hearing this letter read out loud would have known that Jesus was mocked, he was questioned, he was accused of being the friends of sinners, he was accused of being a glutton, a blasphemer, called crazy by his own family, rejected, alone, beaten beyond human recognition. Despite all that, suffering, his mind was set on the cross. Peter is saying that from now on, if you choose to suffer, he's not saying, sorry, that if you choose to suffer, you will never sin again. That's not his point. I know that's what it looks like, 
What he's saying is choosing suffering over sin is always best. Once again, because doing good is hard. But as you do that, as you choose to suffer, as you choose to do good, you are always choosing God over sin. That's what he's saying. You've severed the ties of sin because you're always choosing God. As Wayne Grudem, a theologian, puts it in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, following through on a decision to obey God, even when it will mean physical suffering, has a moral strengthening, morally strengthening effect on our lives. It commits us more firmly than ever before to a pattern of action where obedience is even more important than our desire to avoid pain. Church, you know, if we choose our flesh over the flesh of Jesus, because that's what's happening when he starts in verse three. He's saying, if you choose your flesh, your desires, your wants, your needs, and to escape suffering, he's saying you're gonna spiral out of control. Peter is encouraging us to remain focused to have self-control and to have godly discipline in the midst of it all. Because what the Bible calls discipline, our culture would call oppression. What the Bible calls discipline, the world will call oppression. Because the world wants you to do whatever you want with your body. Because the world will tell us to deny yourself is to deny being human. I know we use the terms or the world, our culture uses terms like, it is your body, no, your body or my body, my rules. Actually, the, the world, I, I actually think, I translate that differently. I think that's what they say, but I don't think that's what they mean. I think what they actually mean is, my, not my body, my rules, I think what they're trying to say is, my body with no rules. The churches get honest. Because out of, a, out of the list that sort of Paul delves into that you spiral out, he starts off with sensuality. So that's where I want to sort of start, take this side tangent, but that's where I partially want to conclude. So let's talk about pornography. Ray Ortland, a pastor in the US, in in one of his books, in the book of The Death of Porn, he says, you'll start getting free when you start getting honest. Grandparents and parents, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Would you consider buying it for yourself? Would you consider buying it for your grandchildren, for your children, for your sons, for your daughters? Would you consider reading it with them as a family? And would you consider and have the courage and suffer through the awkward conversations you must have with them? We must, you must, because we have an entire generation that is spiraling out of control and into complete destruction. That's what we're spiraling into. I know the world has told us, a little poor never hurt anyone, I know. The funny thing is they've slowly retracted that statement now because now they're realizing, uh-oh, there's issues now. 
I've got six pages of numbers, but I wanna pick only two, as I did research for this. I'm gonna give you two only. 28,258 users are watching pornography every second. 28,258 users are watching pornography every second. $3,075.64 is spent on porn every second on the internet. Every second. Either no one's getting hurt or someone's profiting, but I promise you someone's getting hurt. And don't think of this as someone else's problem. Don't, let's not distance ourselves from this issue, church, Abbotsford, Canada. Let's think about our country. It is our country. It is Canada that came up with the website, Ashley Madison, with the catchphrase. You know what his catchphrase was for Ashley Madison, a Canadian website coming out of Toronto? Life is short, have an affair. That's our culture, that's our people. But let's not distance ourselves from that because that's someone else's problem. A Christian survey done about a decade ago asked Christian men what day of the week they would watch porn most often. What day, of do you, do, uh, what day of the week do you think Christian men prefer to watch porn? Sunday. Are you serious? But brothers and sisters, and sisters, I love you. And I'm not here to condemn you. And Jesus is not here to condemn you. But with the rest of the pastors here at Northview, we want to stand with you and encourage you. Because here's the truth. Bruce Marshall, in his book, The World, The Flesh, and The Father Smith, says it best, I think. It's going to sound weird, but believe me, I think he says it best. Every time you log onto a porn site, what you're really looking for is Jesus. After 20 years of ministry and the number of people who have sort of confessed their addiction to, to pornography, I've actually lost count. But I'm thankful for those confessions, both men and women. In my early years of ministry, I made the mistake of just giving the young men and women rules and guidelines or rules and regulations to help like, don't do this, do this, do, you know, put it here, put it there. Don't get me wrong. Rules and regulations are needed and, and, and are helpful. But my mistake was not giving them and not giving you more Jesus. Northview, what I want to tell you is that many of you actually don't believe in the suffering Savior. You say you do, but your lives say otherwise. Let me explain. What you need to know about the suffering savior is that he is not over, only victorious over the spiritual realm, the evil angels and all that. 
but he is also victorious over the physical. You need to know deep down, deep down in your body and in your bones that Jesus completely satisfies, that he is better and greater than any temporary physical joy. Think about Jesus' great command. In Mark 12, verse 30, he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So what Jesus is saying is, with everything, everything, body, mind, heart, soul, love him, give it all over to him. Because you know why? Jesus would not ask us of this if he could not sustain or satisfy where C.S. Lewis would put it beautifully. He's saying, you're worried. You, earthlings, humans, you're so worried about your little mud pie when behind you, he's saying there's endless sand and endless sea so that you can make endless sandcastles. This fascinating book that we call the Bible has this beautiful dichotomy because it mentions the spirit just as much as it mentions the body. Both, because why? Because Jesus wants both. Because he will save both. Is it me or does it seem like in the last few years there have been more pastors than ever before who have had moral failures? One of the first articles I read, about uh, one of the most famous ones of these fallen pastors came out of the New York Times, only a couple of years ago. And in this fascinating read, the article uh, talking about, the, the, the article said, look, we don't agree with Christianity, but he knew Christian pastors and Christians in general should look different. He went on to write that these hip pastors now sound and look exactly like him. And for some reason, as a non-Christian for him, that did not make sense to him. And he wanted them to be different. He actually wanted them, he was asking them to be an example. Maybe we think if we all look and sound like the world, then somehow they will respect us and follow us. But they're not meant to follow us. They're meant to follow Jesus, and Jesus is calling us to be different. Maybe one of the reasons we're not being mocked as often as we, as, as we should, or as the Bible tells us that we should be mocked, is because we look so much like the rest of the world. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, the way he sort of comes to this ending, he reminds us that Jesus, even though victorious, Look, Jesus is saying he's, he's not a winner that's fascinated with his gold medal, sitting in his locker room, staring at it and enjoying his victory all alone. But rather, this victorious, suffering saviour is ready to make things right. That's what he's saying in verse five. Jesus is ready, think about it, like a 100 metre race at the Olympics. The runners are most focused when? At the start line. When they get down on their hands and knees, they're waiting for the, you know, they're waiting for the gun to go off. That's when they're most focused. That's when they're really intensely focused on the sound of the gun. And when the, sun, when the gun goes off, it is an 
awesome spectacle to see. Peter tells the church and asks that Jesus is ready. He's ready for the sound to go off, and when it goes off, you better hold on to something that will last. I want to end with a, with a simple quote from the book To Kill a Mockingbird, said by Atticus Finch. And he says this, I wanted you to see what real courage is. Instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand, it's when you know you're licked before you begin. But you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter what. You rarely win, but sometimes you do. Through the death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can confidently say with Peter and with the rest of the exiles, though it feels like we're losing, we say together with the rest of the saints, Jesus has won and we will join him one day in his victory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you were victorious, that you have won the battle, a battle that we got ourselves into but we couldn't get ourselves out. So we are thankful that though you are and remain without sin, you became sin to reconcile us back to the Father. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you stand victorious over a realm we do not know, we do not understand, of angels and demons and Satan, things that happen like beyond our understanding, you stand victorious over them. But Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you remind us that you also stand victorious over the physical realm, that you were better and greater than any temporary physical joy we might be able to achieve for ourselves. Remind us of that, that you completely satisfy us. Remind that in our blood and bones, Lord Jesus. Help us to know that as you stand with us, we can go through the suffering because you have won it all. In your name, Jesus, we pray.